Welcome to The Wisdom Show, a gathering place for the world's leading experts in the fields of human potential, spirituality, personal development, health, relationships, and more. Join us as we evolve together to the highest expression of our lives. And now, your host, Gene Swan. Welcome, everyone. We're so glad you're joining us, especially today, because we're about to explore topics that have the potential to change all of our lives and that could very well change our future. We have people joining us everywhere from Liverpool to Libya and in between. And we're so excited to have Greg Braden with us. As many of you know, Greg is an internationally renowned pioneer in bridging science and spirituality. His latest book, Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate, gives us some very unique insights into what we need to do, both individually and collectively, to solve the problems we're facing in the world today. And Greg, I think we can all agree there's no better time than now to come together with a new understanding of how we relate to each other and how we move forward into the new world age that you talk about. So thanks for sharing this time with us today. Oh, Gene, thank you for having me on the program. You know, it's the first time you and I have worked together. I'm not sure how that happened, but I'm happy to be here today. And I'm really, really honored uh, to be with uh, in such good company with, uh, I know, some of your past guests and with all the people listening in the world today. And, and yes, if, if we were ever going to apply all of the things that we claim in our hearts to be true and that we now understand about ourselves, our relationship to the world, now would be a really good time to do it. <laughs> yes. Just because of what's happening in the world. And people are so aware of that, and there's a lot of fear, there's confusion, there's also a lot of hope. We have a mixture of everything, and we're glad you're here to sort it out for us with what's going on. Greg, first of all, your book, uh, Deep Truth, how do, what does that title mean? You know, this is, uh, that's a good place to start, Gene, and I, and I appreciate that. The, the title of the book, Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate, uh, it was released in October of 2011, so it hasn't even been a year yet. And uh, one of the first things I found when I released this book, I toured with it all over the world, and I found the word truth means different things to different people. And uh, for some, some people, it's actually a bit of a charged word. And they said, you know, what gives you the right to use the word truth in the title of the book? It was a, a little presumptuous. So uh, the way this title came about, I think, is an important way that, to begin our program. This This book... Uh, had no title until it was almost complete. And that's very unusual for me. Usually I uh, choose a title for a book, and then the book is developed to support that title. So, you know, we had some working titles, but uh, I didn't know what the, the final title was going to be. I'd wake up in the morning and say, what am I going to call my book? And, and the publisher really wanted to know because it's hard to let people know about a book that has no title. But it was, uh, uh, it was in the last stages of the book I was reading a biography uh, about Albert Einstein, and it was in a conversation that Albert Einstein was having with a colleague of his and a, a good friend, uh, Niels Bohr, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist. And the conversation was in the 1940s, uh, midway, just almost midway through the last century. And it was in a time when new discoveries were being published almost on a monthly basis that were overturning the deepest held truths of what science believes to be uh, our, about our relationship to one another, our relationship to the Earth, our relationship to, to the cosmos and physics. And Niels Bohr made a statement, and it was that statement that I read, uh, and I said that has to be the title for the book. So, so the statement that Niels Bohr made, this is a, a quote, he said, it is the hallmark of any deep truth that its negation is also a deep truth. End of quote. 
So what he was saying is that when new discoveries overturn what we once held to be the deepest truths of our existence, the new discoveries themselves become the new deep truths. And when I read that, Gene, I said, that's got to be the title for this book, uh, because that's precisely what this book is, is all about. We know, and I know your listeners are very informed listeners, so if, listeners, I'll speak to you directly now. If you're listening to this program, I know that you know this is no ordinary time in the history, certainly, of, uh, of our nation, if you're in the United States, uh, of our civilization, of our planet. And it's not your imagination. The best minds of our time are, in fact, telling us that we, this generation, these days, this time in history, we are living the greatest number of crises ever to face a single generation in 5,000 years of recorded human history. They say never have so many major crises, each crisis of such magnitude, faced so many people, now over 7 billion people on the planet, never have we had to solve so many problems so quickly in such a brief period of time. And they tell us the only way to solve these problems is for us to think very, very differently than we've ever thought before, and we've got to change our thinking quickly. So that led me. I was trained as a scientist, and as a scientist, my question was, how did we arrive at the thinking that's led to the crises to begin with. And I began to understand, Gene, that, that much of the way we think about ourselves, our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to the earth, our relationship to the past and how we solve our problems, it's based on what we've been told, uh, either consciously or, or subconsciously in our communities and in our families. It's based upon assumptions that science has made over the last 150 years. New discoveries are now telling us where those assumptions are, in some cases, incomplete. Uh, in some cases, they're just flat-out wrong. And you would think that that would be welcome news in the world. The reality is that there is a reluctance, and in some cases an outright resistance, in the mainstream to share these discoveries uh, Publicly, So there's a, a resistance to mainstream media, mainstream documentaries, mainstream textbooks, mainstream classrooms. Uh, and I, I just have to, a little aside here, when I talk about classrooms and textbooks, uh, I'm talking about teachers. I want to be very clear, it's not the teacher's fault. Uh, in the United States, every teacher is bound by a covenant within the state that they teach. They can only share in the classroom what's been approved by the school board. And if the new science, the new discoveries, even though they are based in peer-reviewed science, if those discoveries are not approved, uh, they are required by law to share the curricula, to teach the curricula based on what we now know is science, uh, false science. It's no longer true. So that would be important at any time. It's critical now because those young people and, uh, and others and adults in, in different, uh, different facets of our society we're being asked to solve the greatest crises of human history, uh, and we're being asked to do so using the same thinking that led to the crises to begin with. And that's where the problem arises, and that's why I'm passionate about this material. Uh, and what I'd like to talk about today, the, the new discoveries that overturn 300 years of scientific thinking about us and our relationship to the world, what they mean and how we can incorporate those into our lives. Now, what I find is interesting is you're known for bridging science and spirituality. And, and in and the real world, science, spirituality, and the real world. 
Right, and <laughs> and and how we can apply it. What's so interesting is in the book Deep Truth, you literally give us a bridge that we can cross that connects where are we now, what are the problems. On the other end, we have the spiritual community being very vocal about getting more in touch with love and compassion. But in between, how do we get there? This is the bridge that you're providing with Deep Truth. Well, I, I, it's the bridge I hope to provide. Gene, and you know, the, the honest truth is, uh, our listeners on this program today, if, if they're listening to this program today, they're more, more probably than not what I would call the choir. So people listening to this program are listening because they're on board with the message, and, and they have already spent much of their lives uh, coming to terms with who they are and their relationship to the world and, uh, you know, self-help, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. What the experts are telling us is for the kind of change that we're talking about, for the magnitude of the change in such a brief period of time, we've got to reach well beyond the choir. We've got to reach deep into the mainstream. And the way to do that is through a language that is trusted and respected uh, in the modern world today. And so I'm not talking about the indigenous elders in you know, uh, Africa and Australia and on the Tibetan Plateau or the desert southwest of the United States. I'm speaking about people that work everyday jobs in corporations and are plugged in to the modern technological world. The language that we have come to trust and rely upon is the language of science. So it's for that reason I've chosen to share uh, the new scientific discoveries. And these, when I say peer-reviewed, they have been reviewed uh, in their uh, in their genre, in their circles. And the publications now have accepted a uh, very prestigious journal, Nature, for example, or, or New Scientist, or Journal of American Medical Association, something like that. Those articles are only published after they've gone through a peer review process. So these are not my opinions. Uh, it's not speculation. Uh, it's not New Age or wishful thinking. These are scientific facts that uh, most people simply are unaware of, and then they're surprised when they hear them, at least some of them. And uh, when we embrace these discoveries and really put them into context, they change everything about the way we've been led to think about our lives and our relationship to the world and the way we've been led to live our lives So, as individuals, but it, it also is reflected in the big stuff around us. We, right now, we're witnessing the collapse of a global economic system, and it's about much more than money. This is about people and the way people work together the way they share the vital resources that are needed in every life, uh, every day. Uh, we're witnessing the buildup uh, of, uh, of military armaments and troops in the Middle East uh, in what very possibly could become a, a, a big war, and many people feel a sense uh, that they're pushing for a big war in the Middle East. Uh, it's a war that never needs happen. Unless something changes, there's a good possibility it will happen. Uh, we're all experiencing uh, the effects of climate change, and global warming is only one facet of climate change. There's much more to it than that, but the, the net effect is that the rain doesn't fall where it used to. Crops don't grow the way they used to. Foods uh, are not available in ways that they used to be, be able to, or we used to be able to have those foods. Fresh water is becoming a rare commodity in the world, and how we work together to address those problems is determined by the way we think of ourselves, the lens through which we see ourselves in our relationship to the world, knowing that that lens currently in the modern world is based on a series of false assumptions 
number one, it helps us understand why we're in the mess we're in. Number two, it helps us to know if we truly choose uh, better lives for ourselves, our families, and a better world, it gives us uh, the framework uh, and a place to begin to make the choices based on what's honest and what's true uh, and the facts as we know them today. So, so that is why, where that bridge uh, comes from. There's a long answer to a short comment, Gene, that I think it was important to, to share all those things uh, so that we can tie into these ideas as we start addressing questions later in this program. Yes, and in the book Deep Truth, uh, you outline five false assumptions. Can you go over those with us and tell us where the science has been updated? It's not in the textbooks yet, it's not in the mainstream yet, but in your scientific re- research, you found that this is where we need to make changes in our beliefs. You know, it's not in the textbooks in this country. It is in other countries, and that's, uh, I think, an important distinction to make. And it, what a beautiful segue. I was just going to ask you if we could do that. <laughs> so so we're on the same page here. What I'd like to do, Gene, is uh, when I was researching the book, there are many false assumptions that science has made about us and our relationship to the world. And, and I want to be very clear with the listeners. I'm, I'm not criticizing the past, and I'm certainly not judging the past. And, and I have found in my experience that, um, it's really not so much about saying that we have made big mistakes in the past. If we can think of ourselves on a vast learning curve and recognize that we've done the best we could as individuals and, and pretty much collectively, uh, there are you know, certainly always exceptions, but we've done the best we can with what we knew to be true at the time, then we can say that our choices of the past worked so well that they got us to where we are today. We have to say they work because we're here. So we're here today, and now that we are recognizing where some of the thinking of the past wasn't complete or in some cases was was wrong, we can choose again. So knowing that, I I selected five key assumptions that uh, when I was in school back in the 60s and 70s, they were taught as fact. If we have, have young people in school, our listeners have young people in school today, these are still being taught in the classroom as fact. And... Any other theories or any other ideas, not theories, but but proven facts, uh, are not allowed to stand uh, alongside these ideas. So, in other words, we're we're giving our young people uh, a view of our world, and they're not privy to the new discoveries uh, and to the toolbox that they can develop where the new discoveries help to flesh out those ideas. So I think it will become apparent as we go through these. What I'd like to do is share these five. I'm just going to state them quickly, a couple of words about each one, and, and then uh, we can tie into these for the rest of, of the program. Okay. But the first false assumption, people taking notes. Get your notebooks and pencils ready. Yes. <laughs> these right. are important. Yeah, so the, the first one is probably no surprise. It's uh, with relation to Charles Darwin and um, where we come from. Uh, when I was in school and classrooms there are teaching that evolution explains life in general and human life specifically. So those are two different things. Uh, evolution is, is being uh, touted as the explanation for both. The problem, Gene, is the data no longer supports it. The physical data doesn't support it. Uh, and the new DNA data certainly doesn't support this. Now, I'm, I'm going to be clear. I don't know what the answer is. I've got my personal suspicions. But scientific fact. We don't know what the answer is, and we also know that Darwin's idea of evolution does not explain what the facts are showing us today, 
yet evolution is still being taught is the only viable uh, way of understanding our, our origins. So that's false assumption number one. Uh, false assumption number two has to do with uh, the age of civilization itself. We're taught that advanced civilization, that history began about 5,000 to 5,500 years ago uh, in the Mesopotamian Valley, ancient Sumeria. And everything has been that we study, the Egyptian culture, Greek, Rome, all of those things, they're, they're more recent. The problem with that is that new peer-reviewed discoveries now are revealing evidence of advanced, archaeological evidence of advanced civilizations over twice as old as what we're led to believe is the age of civilization. I personally documented uh, uh, some of these myself. Uh, I talk about them in the book. Um, and this is not being shared in the classroom. So we're being led to believe that civilization is linear. It's a one-time deal. It began primitive, built to the pinnacle of the sophistication and technology that we see today, <clears throat> when the, the evidence is clearly showing that it, it is cyclic, at least two cycles of civilization, 5,000 years apiece. And the value of that gene is, is it means that humans lived through cycles in their time, the conditions that the same cycles are showing us in our time. And if we can learn what worked for them and what didn't, uh, then we can apply those understandings and do a lot of the things that work well and the things that, that aren't useful. Let's don't put any more energy into them. Uh, and that's false assumption number two. False assumption number three is, uh, is based in physics, and it is the physics that teaches us that consciousness is somehow separate from our physical world. Uh, the problem is that our own science is telling us it's not true. Uh, John Wheeler Professor John Wheeler, Princeton University, was a friend and a colleague of Albert Einstein's. He, he just passed in, uh, in the year 2008. He was a very vocal proponent of the fact that, that consciousness is not only not separate from our world, it's the stuff that our world emerges from. And the reason that we have yet to come up with this unified field theory in physics is because we've written consciousness out of the equations and and so there is an inconsistency. There's a gap that consciousness uh, uh, has left in not being allowed in the equations. Uh, false assumption number four is related, and it says the space between physical things is empty. Now, we know today that there is no empty space in the universe. There are forms of energy uh, that exist everywhere. Some of those forms of energy, we simply don't have the equipment to detect, or we haven't until recently. But we're still being taught in the classroom that everything is, space between things is empty. The implication is everything is separate from everything else. So what we do in one place has very little, if any, effect uh, on what happens somewhere else. And the last false assumption in this brief list, last in this list, maybe the one we want to start with, and is probably wreaking the greatest havoc in our world and our lives today, it goes back again to the ideas of Charles Darwin. Darwin stated in his words in, in 1859 when he published his first book that, and I'm going to use his language here, nature, he said, is based on what he called survival of the strongest. Survival of the strongest is such a very, very dangerous way of thinking. Um, it was later interpreted as survival of the fittest. Uh, the problem with that is the best science of our time is now showing us, in no uncertain terms, that nature is actually based the rule of nature, the model of nature, the foundation is based on the model of cooperation and what's called mutual aid. In the places where we see 
violent competition and aggression, those are aberrations of our truest relationship with nature. And people say to me, well, Greg, you know, it looks like a violent world out there. And I say, you know, if that's true, to the degree that it does, that tells you how much of an aberration our world has developed into away from the deepest truths of, of nature and, and the natural order. So all of these are important, and they would be at any time. They're critical now, Gene, because as we are asked to think quickly and to think differently in such a brief period of time to solve the crises that threaten our future and our very existence, when we talk about war and global economies, if we truly choose to have viable, sustainable uh, solutions, these and other discoveries must be embraced. Uh, if we're going to apply the old ideas of thinking that tell us that everything is separate from everything else and that conflict and competition is the rule of nature, uh, we're already living the consequences of that way of thinking. It's the world that is breaking down in very, very major systems. Of course, a lot of good things are happening as well. The good things aren't the problem. Uh, we rarely find ourselves stuck in cycles of, of joy and ecstasy where <laughs> that's a problem. So, so we're looking at the things that, that actually threaten our future and our survival. So these five, five key assumptions, uh, I wanted to lay those out early in this program as well. And as we begin to talk about what this means, uh, cycles of time, the Mayan calendar, uh, the big problems that, that we're facing in the world, we can tie back into these, uh, you know, in, in a responsible way. Yes, and we'll talk about the Mayan calendars in a few minutes. On these five topics, the two to me, and you did mention, you know, that cooperation is key, also consciousness being the ground of everything. Those two seem so huge to me. The, in the area of competition, that is the one that I think, how can we change that? Because we're so steeped, at least in the uh, United States, that we have to compete for good. Children are taught from the time they go to preschool. They have to compete for grades and sports and getting into the best schools. And it's just so ingrained in the way people live and think. How do you think we can begin to turn that around, aside from textbooks actually presenting what you're saying here? Gene, what you're saying is, is very true, and it, it's interesting. So let's spend a few minutes on this. The, the idea uh, of competition, you're right, our young people are being, and there are always exceptions to this. I know there are exceptions, but in large part, our young people are being taught uh, that it's, it's the end product, to score the point on the playing field or get the right answer on the test. That's what counts. Any way you can get to that is, is what's important. Even people that have spent so much of their lives deeply uh, in, enmeshed in the spiritual traditions are sometimes surprised at how, on the subconscious level, uh, these ideas still play a, a powerful role in their lives. And for example, I think if we live in the United States or in the Western world, we probably all heard the term that we live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Uh, we've been led to believe that we live in a world of scarcity, that there's one pie out there that we call the world, and we've got to fight tooth and nail for our slice of the pie. The best science now is telling us that that simply isn't, isn't true at all. I want to say a couple of words about competition, because it, it means different things to different people. And there, there are two forms of competition. And when we talk about violent competition in biology and nature, uh, or among ourselves, there's a form of competition where one person or, or a group benefits at the expense of another. 
where an individual or a group exploit the, the vulnerabilities or the weakness of another for their gain, for their benefit. That's one form of competition. And that's considered violent competition. There's another form of competition where an individual or a group excels in, uh, in an ability or uh, hones the skills in a particular area of expertise to such a degree that what they're doing now makes other ways of doing the same thing obsolete. Buckminster Fuller talked about this before, uh, before his death. He was such a brilliant man. And what he said, what, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said, uh, you'll never change the existing reality by, by fighting the things you don't like. He says, if you want to make a change, find a new way of doing things better that make the old ways obsolete. And, and I think that's what this, this mode of competition is, is saying to us. When we can excel in a, a, a given uh, craft or a given skill by developing it to its, its greatest level, uh, and if by doing that it, it renders other ways of doing the same thing obsolete, that's a form of competition, but we didn't exploit the weakness uh, of, of another to do that. So having said that, there were 400 scientific studies that were done in late the 1990s that asked a single question. What is the optimum amount of competition in any environment, in the classroom, in the family, in the playing field, uh, in the office, in the workplace? All 400 studies came back with exactly the same number Probably is no surprise to our listeners that number was zero. Zero competition. They said always, always, and they're talking about violent competition. Always. Violent competition is detrimental to the individual. It's de detrimental to the group. Nature actually is based upon this model of what's called mutual aid and cooperation. In the very prestigious journal New Scientist, uh, 2008, April of 2008, if people want to check this out, uh, there's an essay by a gentleman named Michael LePage, where he's talking about the role of, uh, the myth, actually, of, uh, of violent competition. And what he says is that, uh, and this is a, a, a quote from memory, he said, what we see in the wild is not every animal out for itself. That cooperation plays a vital role in survival strategies, and that when cooperation breaks down, he said the result can be disastrous. So this is the scientific community telling us that what we've been led to believe about this violent dog-eat-dog -dog world, while we have witnessed it in our lives, what we have witnessed is an aberration to the, the overarching rule of nature. And if we want to get back to sustainable ways of dealing with the big problems, that we're best served by following the, the, the rules and the laws uh, of the natural world. For our listeners, I mean, if, if you've never heard of any of this before and you're saying, what? You know, I'm just going to invite you to think about this. You want to see how deep nature's fundamental level of cooperation goes. You, I'm speaking directly to the listeners, you need look no further than the body that houses the consciousness that's listening to my voice right now. Because the, the experts tell us, scientists tell us, biologists tell us that the average human body has, it looks like a single body, it's made of about 50 trillion individual cells. Those cells are separate from one another, but those 50 trillion cells must work together to cooperate so that you have whatever level of, of health 
that you have in your life. And when the cooperation breaks down, we call it disease. If it breaks down far enough, we call it death. So at the, at the very essence of your being, you are modeled every moment of every day how deep nature's law of cooperation and mutual aid really goes. And the question is, are we so different in our world and our nations and our societies that we believe that we're an exception to, to that deep truth of, of nature? Uh, we're about to find the answer in the way we solve these big problems today. So people ask me, Gene, all the time. I, I've been to audiences all over the world, through the translators or, or here in the States. They say, okay, Greg, we got, you know, Darwin maybe wasn't uh, quite right. But he introduced that information 150 years ago. Now this is the 21st century. What difference, you know, could it possibly make? And it's a really good question. And the answer is yes. Darwin introduced these ideas in 1859, and we're now in the early 21st century. But our world, our civilization, our society, the building blocks uh, that we've come to trust and rely upon for our lives and the way things work today are largely built upon principles that were developed in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s. We've improved upon ideas that were planted, seeds that were planted in the late 1800s and early 1900s. When Darwin's ideas were new, they were quickly embraced because they were based in science, and they became deeply entrenched in our world. So, for example, the global economic system that is collapsing uh, as we speak is a beautiful example of survival of the strongest taken to an extreme uh, in an unsustainable way in our world. The corporations that we have come to trust and rely upon for so much of our lives, the same thing is happening there. The way we've solved the problems between nations, whatever happens in the Middle East, is taken to an extreme. This idea of survival of the strongest, but it's not just about two countries. When you, you look at the way the powers are aligned, uh, with what's happening in the Middle East, it, is, it truly is, uh, is frightening to see what that alignment looks like. The United States, all of Western Europe, um, uh, North America, and Israel uh, facing off against China, Russia, Turkey, Syria, uh, Iran, and all of a sudden what sounds like a little conflict in the 6 o'clock news becomes a, a, a big global problem. So these are examples in the real world of why it's so important to recognize uh, how we've been led to think about ourselves, where the thinking in the past uh, has, has led, the consequences of, of what that thinking has created, and if, if we want to get to the bottom of it and make a meaningful change, where that change can begin. So that's what I wanted to say about these uh, in this first half of the program. So the, the new world age that you talk about is um, about serving humanity not corporate interests, not harming each other. That's really the, the bottom line message, isn't it? Corporations aren't good or bad. The economy isn't good or bad. Uh, dollars aren't good or bad. Oil isn't good or bad. It's all about the thinking of how, uh, how it's used, uh, how it's maintained, and, and how it's all performed. Uh, they are, these are all vehicles that allow us to display uh, our our deepest beliefs of our relationship to one another. You know, people don't talk about that every day. But the uh, the euro is a perfect example. You know, the euro actually worked pretty well. The euro system was designed in the 20th century after the worst world war in human history. And if you read the documents, it's fascinating to me. The way the euro was designed, it was designed to elicit freedoms, freedom 
of commerce, freedom of goods, freedom of, uh, of movement of people, uh, and currency. And it actually worked pretty well and did that um, until greed and corruption became a part of, of the equation. So the system itself is inherently bad. It's the way that the system is implemented. And I, I think that can be said of many of the things that we're looking at today. I saw a beautiful documentary, a very authoritative documentary on mainstream media. It was about oil. It said oil is the big problem in the world. Um, you know, maybe it's my bias, Gene, as a former geologist, but I have to say oil is simply a resource that we've been blessed with. And it plays such a role in our... It's about more than cars and, and gasoline and engines. Uh, oil has found its way into the, the fabric of our clothing. Uh, our food is possible because... The the um, the machinery that has allowed the the food to be grown and and produced the way it has is largely based on you know internal combustion engines and shipping the food from one place to another and until we find a better way it, it has served us. Uh, it's only when the greed factor comes in and uh, and the certainly the corruption around all of those things we we definitely need to find clean green sustainable ways of living. I, I want people to hear me clearly on that. And uh, on those technologies are available now. Uh, it's the thinking that prevents us from em embracing those in our lives. But to demonize uh, things like corporations or like uh, the economy or you know, like oil, that's, from my perspective, they're not the problem. The problem is the thinking that's implemented them and the corruption that's come and the greed that's come from those ways of thinking. So I've I said that okay, I hope it makes sense. Yes, I should have used the word greed, not singling out any specific area, but yeah. it's the behavior of greed. It's not uh, what the what the entity is or who they are, it's the well, behavior and the thinking. And, and greed, greed actually, if you read the studies, it's interesting. I mean, I've had to come to terms with this. Greed is uh, an outward expression of uh, a form of fear, and the fear comes from believing that we live in a finite world of, uh, of scarcity and lack where everybody's got to fight for their piece of the pie. So greed and corruption are, are outcomes of the false assumptions of science that we have uh, been led to believe describe us and our relationship to the world. You know, one of the things I, I'm, I, I'm not saying that the way we're solving our problems now is right or wrong. I'm not going to judge it. What I'm going to say is this. The studies have found cooperation and mutual aid are the overarching rules of, of the natural world. Um, and that when we betray those, humans will betray their truest nature. We will become violent, and we all know that. When one or some combination of three, uh, three principles is present, and I'm, I'm just going to share what those are, the three principles right now. Number one, we feel personally threatened. We will become violent. I think we all know that. When we feel that our family is threatened, number two, we will become violent. Uh, the one that surprises a lot of people is when we feel that our way of life is threatened. We'll betray our truest nature and become violent. You look at the hot spots in the world today where the greatest suffering is occurring and where the potential is for the great wars. And in most cases, uh, all three of those are present. People are feeling personally threatened. Their families, they feel, are, are not safe and their way of life isn't safe. So at some point, if we truly choose to create uh, a sustainable world of sustainable peace, we've got to address those. People need to know that they are safe, their families are safe, 
their way of life. And this is, this is, I think, where it's really coming down to the wire because the modern world uh, and the ancient world and the principles and the beliefs that allow each to be what they are, uh, there's a belief that those aren't compatible. And they're not compatible when greed and corruption come in, into the picture. So uh, at some point, if we truly choose to get to the bottom of these, those principles must be addressed. Yes, and it makes so much sense the way you present it. We are going to be taking a few phone calls. The number to call is 619-324-7283. Again, the number is 619-324-7283. Be sure to mute the sound on your computer when you do call so that the call will come through on the air. And Greg, as a foremost authority on the Mayan calendars, that is something that is on the minds of a lot of people. Um, there has been fear in the media, as you mentioned, and then there are many people who are hopeful and people who are in between. But with your scientific background, can you tell us where we're at in this year 2012? And also, you describe this window of time from 1980 until 2016 in which we can determine the course of our future. So can you talk about what's happening now and this window of time? I'll do the best I can from what I've come to understand uh, in in my studies. And, and the reason that I've looked into this at all, Gene, is because people began asking me back in the 1980s about the year 2012 and to, to what we could reasonably expect, what can we realistically expect. Uh, and to be able to answer those questions responsibly, uh, what I began to understand quickly was I had to think about our world in a very different way. When you move beyond the modern industrialized world, almost universally, our indigenous ancestors and our, our most cherished spiritual traditions, they view life in terms of cycles. They view our earth in terms of cycles and the cosmos in terms of cycles. And it's about our relationship to those cycles. Uh, in the modern world, we're not taught that way at all. We're, we're given a linear view of the world. We're not told about the ages past, uh, about the cycles of civilization past, and, and what those things mean. So when I began, what I, I sensed for myself was that I, the information for me would be clearest and least disturbed in, uh, if I could go to ancient sites and ancient peoples that were most intact. And that led me on a journey that continues to this day into some of the most isolated and remote, magnificent, pristine places remaining on the earth. Most of them are very high in elevation where I thrive. I am a high-altitude kind of guy. <laughs> I live at 8,000 feet above sea level in northern New Mexico, and, and the higher I get, the, the better I feel. So it worked out really well for me to explore the mountains of uh, the Andes and Bolivia and Peru and uh, the Himalayas and... Uh, the mountains of, of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, where the monasteries remain, and some of the clearest indications of our past. Universally, almost universally, what I found is different as the cultures are, Gene, they all say that we are coming to the end. This year uh, is the last year of a rare and mysterious cycle of time. Uh, it is a 5,125-year-long cycle that began with a rare astronomical alignment uh, that we can confirm on the on the computers today, and the alignment occurred August 11th, 3114 BC, is what the term we used to use. Uh, now we call it BCE, before Common Era, but BC. So 3114 BC. That's the biblical era. It means that our 
the modern Christian, Judeo-Christian traditions actually were formed during the time that people were going through the changes in their cycle at the end of theirs that we're now going through at the end of ours. So I think that's an interesting perspective uh, because they were sharing with us then the keys that they found that would help us get through the cycles in ours now. Uh, we'll come back to that in just, just a moment. But the what the, the universal traditions say that we are living the last year of this rare, mysterious cycle of time. There have been at least four of these cycles in the past. We're living the fifth. Um, and many of the traditions are earth-based. So they describe the cycles in terms of uh, earth experiences uh, very close to the earth, like when a white buffalo is born in the plains of North America or when the rains no longer fall you know, in, in the deserts of the Hopi land. That's the time of the change. To a scientist, that doesn't mean much. And this is why the Mayan traditions have become so popular. That's because the Maya thought much the way the modern world thinks in terms of numbers, uh, cycles, uh, and they were able to document those numbers in mathematic terms that make sense to us today. So the Mayan tell us that we have, in fact, been on a, a path since uh, August 11, 3114 B.C. We've been on a countdown. Every 1,872,000 days, we go through this change. So it, if you know when the cycle began, and you know it's 1,872,000 days long, you know how many days have passed, you know right where you are in the cycle. So these were the indigenous people telling me that a, a change was afoot. What I began to do then was to look into the history of the Earth itself through the ice cores of Antarctica as a geologist. I was trained as a geologist. Um, computer analysis. I was trained as a senior computer systems designer for Martin Marietta Defense during last year's the Cold War, pattern recognition software. Uh, putting all that together to see what the history of the Earth tells us about the cycles, it's probably no surprise that there's a strong correlation between what our ancestors and the elders tell us about the past and, and what the history of the Earth actually shows. The, the bottom line, Gene, is that we are... Uh, at the end of, of a cycle, both geologically uh, and in terms of, of civilization. Um, Earth location in space changes on a rhythmic basis. The tilt, the angle, the wobble, the orbit. When that happens, it changes our relationship to the sun and to the center of the Milky Way. Uh, that changes things like the climate on the Earth. And when the climate changes, the weather changes. And that changes where it rains, where it snows, how hot or cold it gets, our ability to grow food, and that changes us. We are changed in the presence of those changes because we must choose how we deal with a changing world. Do we compete violently and fight one another, or do we cooperate and work together to get through the changes? So looking at all that, uh, the geolog geologic record says we should be in the changes right now, that we are in a place where you expect the warming of the Earth, uh, the warming is usually intense and it's brief. It doesn't last uh, long like the media is asking us to believe. And contrary to what a lot of the media is saying, Gene, humans did not cause the warming. The warming has happened many times in the past. Uh, we certainly have to say we've contributed because we're putting stuff into the atmosphere. So did we contribute? Yes. Did we cause it? No. It's happened many times before we got here. What's really interesting is when you look at the data from the ice cores themselves, what they show, Gene, uh, when you go down to the fine levels of detail, and this is in peer-reviewed 
documented evidence that I talk about in the book uh, Deep Truth, is that when we go through the cycles, the temperatures of the Earth rise before the accumulation of the greenhouse gases increases. The temperatures rise before the greenhouse gas levels increase. And what that means is the greenhouse gases cannot be the cause for the warming. Um, it doesn't mean we, we don't need to clean up our act. We do. We need to get off fossil fuels. We need to find new ways to, to power our planet. But here's why I'm sharing this piece of information. The false science that blames humans for the warming tends to blame some humans more than others, some countries more than others, like India and China, for example. And what has happened is they've tried to assign financial penalties to those countries based on the false science. It has caused so much hard feelings, or so much discord, so many hard feelings, that it has made cooperation very, very difficult. And I believe that the honest thing to do would be for us to come together as uh, as leaders, as civilians, as nations, and be very honest with one another and say, look, is climate change a reality? The answer is yes, the climate's changing. Uh, do we understand it fully? The answer is no. But we can transcend the differences of our past. Show the people of the world that we can work together beyond the differences of the past, and help our people get through and adapt to this change that is taking the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. It's destroying populations in seaside communities. It's destroying entire ways of life. Let's help one another get through this period while we're studying it, while we come to understand it better, uh, rather than blaming one another and assigning these penalties. That is the reason I'm sharing the scientific facts and why I think it's important to, to be truthful and honest uh, about this, this conversation that we have of, uh, over global warming. Some people use global warming and climate change interdependently. I'm making a distinction. Uh, global warming is one facet of climate change, and there are other things that are happening as well that probably can't do justice to in, in this program. So uh, in the brief time we have, I hope, uh, what I said makes sense, and I hope I did justice to the, the topic for the people that are listening, because I know it, it elicits a lot of emotion, um, and I want people to hear me very clearly. We definitely need to clean up our act and go green and find new ways of, of providing the fuel uh, and the power for 7 billion-plus people on the earth, blaming one another for a natural phenomenon and causing the hard feelings that makes it difficult to work together, in my opinion, is not the way to go about dealing with the problem. Um, we have a question coming in from the Internet, and this person is asking, how does one cope with the growing negativity in the world? You bring a message of hope, but people are seeing in the world, you know, a lot of turbulence. So what would your suggestion be on that? Well, it's a good question, and um, uh, I think all that any of us can do uh, is be responsible for ourselves. You know, we're not going to change the mind of our coworkers or our family members or anything like that. I, and it's not our job to do that. It's about us living the truth of what we have found to be true in our lives. Often by doing that, we become examples, and other people uh, will follow those examples. But what I, I've found is this. A couple of uh, kind of uh, corollaries to everything that we're saying here. Number one, Gene, what I've found for myself, I've shared this with people all over the world, and it's been useful to them, is when we see something that makes no sense, uh, it's generally because we don't have all the information. What I see happening in the world today doesn't make sense to me because we could stop so much of it at any time. 
it means I don't have all the information. Maybe maybe I shouldn't. Maybe, I'm not saying I need that, but I'm saying there are things we don't have the whole picture, number one. Number two, what I've found is that to simply tell people to change, usually it doesn't work. It's not effective. Uh, people don't like to, to be told to think differently or to live differently. On the one hand, on the other hand, when the facts are clear, the choices generally become obvious. So when the facts are clear of the new discoveries of our relationship uh, to our bodies, for example, or our relationship to the world, or the fact that nature is based on this model of competition that most of us inherently know anyway. I mean, when you say that to a room full of people, you, I mean, you could feel the room change and there's a sigh of relief. And, you know, we tend to be cooperative beings anyway. Um, when we can share the facts, when the facts are clear, the choices become obvious. And then the question comes down to this, what can we do? What can we do? So I'm, I'm going to say this now. Uh, generally, I'd say at the very end of, of this program, but I'm going to say it now just in, in relation to this question. We all have been led to ask a question about our relationship to the world, e either consciously or subconsciously. We've been led to think in a way and to ask a question, uh, and this is the question. What can I get from the world that exists? either subconsciously or consciously, that question has played into many of the choices that we made. Relationships, jobs, career paths, all of it. What can I get from the world that exists right now? And that question is based upon the false assumptions of science that tell us that we're separate from our bodies, that we're separate from one another, we're separate from the earth. Civilization is a one-time deal. We're at the top of the heap and that competition and conflict are the way to solve our problems. That's where that question comes from. Now, the new discoveries have given us a new lens through which to see ourselves, an honest, factual lens that says that we are uh, deeply connected with our, our own bodies, our thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, connected to our bodies, that we're, we're deeply connected to the natural systems of this earth that we're living in a civilization that is cyclic. It's not linear. Uh, advanced civilizations have been here before. What can we learn from them? And that nature is based on a model of cooperation and mutual aid. Now we can change that question, and we have a good reason to do it. The new question now becomes, if we, we can make this shift in our personal lives from asking, what can I get from the world that exists, to the new question, what can I give the world that's emerging? What can I contribute to the new world to help that world become the, the world that I would like to see? That, the way we answer that question, changes everything. It opens the door to tremendous new possibilities of careers and jobs because suddenly we don't have to just do what we were trained to do or where our degree is in. Uh, and we begin to to share our heartfelt gifts uh, with the emerging world and the communities that are forming for, uh, to create this emerging world. And we're doing it in the presence of, of systems that are collapsing all around us. And uh, what I found is that is one of the most empowering things for individuals to do, to honestly ask themselves the question, what, what can I give? to this new world, and then in ways that make sense, implement those changes in, in your life. And I think that's, that's where the change comes from. 
So, for, like, just for example, we live in northern New Mexico, very close to Los Alamos National Labs. This is in northern New Mexico. Um, the Manhattan Project was there. You know, the first atom uh, the nuclear weapons w- were developed there. Uh, I know a physicist that has worked there for many years and woke up one morning and looked at many of the things we're talking about now, and his job no longer made any sense. He walked away from that job, all the things he was trained to do, from the security, certainly from the income of that job, and he and his family now raise llamas and chickens outside of Taos, New Mexico. Uh, They work together as a family to create their own livelihood and their own well-being. He's with his family and his, his children every day, and his wife have rediscovered one another. And they feel good about what they're doing and what they're contributing. Uh, there's a builder in uh, just outside of, uh, of Albuquerque. Uh, the home building has collapsed almost to zero. He took his expertise in building things, and rather than build homes, he found ways to build uh, sustainable gardens that are portable and can be shipped anywhere in the world where people can have food up and running in their, you know, in, in their homes year-round, indoors or outdoors, uh, in just a matter of two or three weeks. So he took his expertise and began applying it differently in his life. And, and he, he's happy. He feels good about what he's doing. So just uh, a couple of examples, uh, concrete examples of the things I'm sharing, um, maybe that help ground them into something a little more meaningful in, in our conversation here. Yes, and that is happening to so many people that I've spoken with. In the economy, with people losing jobs or having circumstances change, in a sense, it has forced them to reevaluate their lives and then do what they always wanted to do but never had the time to. So these uh, incidents are, are a gift to people in a lot of ways when they transform their lives into helping others. They are, Gene, and there, there's another little corollary to this. I, I have good friends who are no longer employed. They've lost their jobs doing what they were trained to do because their jobs, they were good jobs. They served them in the world when the world and those jobs made sense together. The world has changed. Nobody came out and told us that outwardly, but the world has changed. And so for some people, they view the changes as a speed bump in the road of life, and they're waiting for the road to level out for things to go back to the way they were. For those people clinging to an idea of what the world was five years ago or eight years ago, that world is gone. Those are the people that are struggling because they're clinging to an idea of a world that no longer exists. They can't find jobs, for example. So I have a friend who's unemployed, wants to do exactly what he was trained to do, and because he's unemployed, he listens to a lot of talk radio, uh, AM talk radio stations all day long, that tell him how bad the world is and how scarce employment is and why he'll never be able to find a job. And that reinforces the belief that he can't find a job. And the corollary is this. We tend to experience what we identify with. We tend to experience in our lives what we identify with in the world. So those that identify with scarcity, with lack, uh, with a world uh, of, uh, you know, a world that's falling apart, you see that everywhere. Those that can identify with emerging, new, healthy, sustainable ways of contributing uh, they'll still see the other things. I'm, I'm not denying that jobs in some sectors are scarce. I'm not denying that the economy is is uh, is in bad shape. What I'm saying is when I look around, I see a lot of people working every day, and they're happy with what they're doing. And if you look at the differences, those are people 
who are contributing uh, to uh, their community uh, and to their families in ways that to them are meaningful, uh, sustainable. They feel good about it in, in their lives, and, and most of all, they're happy. And I, I think this is where the world we're going to see, we're going to see less. There's a push for centralization and, and more government. And while that may happen on some levels like national defense and energy, uh, other levels I think we're going to see it going the other way, and we're going to be relying more upon localized communities uh, for the things that we need and for the things that make sense in our lives. So it makes a lot more sense for a community to grow their own food, and we see this all over northern New Mexico, and to share it with one another rather than grow that food halfway around the world, use a, a lot of fossil fuel fertilizers to grow where it doesn't grow well, uh, use a lot of fossil fuel in the tractors and all the equipment to harvest that food, put it on a big plane, have a huge carbon footprint to get that food to our local markets, uh, all of a sudden we've contributed to the very thing that we're hoping to change. It makes a lot of sense uh, to be able to sustain ourselves in, in a reasonable way uh, with our own communities. And, and the food's fresh, people are healthier, and they're happier that way. So just another example of, of where I see uh, a long answer to a short question, what I see changing and where, that, where I see it going. Yes, and for anyone who's seen the movie Thrive, or if you haven't seen it yet, it's available online, and it does really... <laughs> Did you see that? I, I haven't. I, I don't get out much. I guess <laughs> It's online, but it talks quite a bit about the communities springing up around the country and the changes and people taking the power into their own hands and wanting to make these changes and then working together to do it, as mm -hmm. you're describing. And I also want to mention before we go in a couple of minutes that uh, if you'd like to go deeper into this fascinating work with Greg Braden, we do have a special offer. It's available on the email you received also at thewisdomshow.com. You click under special offers. Greg, this is amazing because Hay House has put together a package that includes so many physical products, CDs and DVDs, and also your movie Entanglement. So, which this is the first time about this, Gene, so I'm listening with interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, your whole library or a large part of your library work is included in this tremendous offer. So Hay House, Hay House has made that available to our audience through your through the program? Yes. Wow. Right. Okay. Well, you know, I, I always want to say a word about Hay House. Hay House is a corporation, and they're a beautiful example of a very conscious corporation. I've known people that have worked there for a long time. The turnout, turnover is very low at Hay House. And they have supported um, me and a host of other authors. Everyone learns differently, and that's why there's so many very good teachers out there. Uh, and not everyone is comfortable with the language of science. So there are a lot of different ways to, to approach the things we're talking about. But they have really worked to support me in this message. And a, and a perfect example, and, and this may be in the package, I don't know, the audio recording of Deep Truth. Typically, they abridge the audio to four CDs so that they can sell it in, a, you know, a Barnes and Noble or, or something like that. They listen to the content of what we're talking about, which is what we've been saying in this program. And they said they could not find a place where they could edit out anything and, and have the material retain the integrity. They left the whole thing uh, there, even though it doesn't fit the the business model uh, that we've typically seen in the past, because they felt like this is so important. So. I want to thank you all for supporting Hay House and thank Hay House for doing such a good job of, of pulling this material together for us. Yes, it is an eight-CD set. So 
At a 66% discount, you receive not only the HCD set of Deep Truth, but the CDs for the Divine Matrix, Fractal Time, Spontaneous Healing of Belief, Science of Miracles, an incredible collection. So I just want to make sure everyone knows that that is available. And I want to thank you, Greg, for sharing all of your knowledge and your wisdom that can help us create a better world. So thanks for being with us. Oh, Gene, thank you for being such a gracious host. Uh, uh, you let me do most of the talking today, and I, <laughs> I recognize that, and I appreciate it because it helps me to have a, uh, uh, the continuity in the conversation so it's not fragmented and, and uh, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to do it that way. So thank you for your dedication to, to making this all possible and for your vision of this kind of, uh, this kind of media. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. We really appreciate it. I want to thank each and every one of our listeners also for joining us and welcoming these rare and incredible insights that Greg has shared. So we look forward to sharing more possibilities with you next time on The Wisdom Show. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to visit us at thewisdomshow.com for access to archives of previous shows and special discount packages offered by our world-renowned experts. Thanks to internetaudiohub.com for our state-of-the-art broadcast sound. Internetaudiohub.com is available for all of your Internet audio needs. We look forward to joining you next time on The Wisdom Show.